All across the universe, there aren't just optical phenomena to look at, like stars, galaxies, and these visible light objects that we can see. There are also objects that emit tremendous amount of energy over a wide variety of wavelengths, from high-energy gamma rays and X-rays all the way down to long-wavelength, low-energy radio emissions. And of all of the phenomena in the universe, the most energetic ones of all, at least in the electromagnetic part of the spectrum, are known as quasars and active galactic nuclei, thought to be powered by supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies. When they're actively feeding on matter, they can outshine the sun by factors of trillions to quadrillions, making them the most energetic objects in the known universe. But how do they turn on, turn off, and otherwise evolve with time? It's a fascinating question that we've only just begun to explore, and you can find out whole lots more about it on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. If you want to learn more about an object or a class of objects in the universe than you've ever known about them previously, you need additional data. Sometimes that means you need data in additional wavelength bands. Sometimes that means you need higher precision data. And other times, it simply means you need longer baseline data over greater periods of time. And when it comes to the question of what active galactic nuclei are doing, we use a combination of all of these techniques to find out about them. And here, to be our guide on our journey through them, I'm so pleased to welcome to the program Dr. John Hood of the University of Chicago. John is a postdoctoral research associate, a newly minted PhD, and one of the leaders in the space of active galactic nuclei monitoring and evolution. John, I'm so pleased to have you here and welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really my pleasure. Thank you for joining us. So, if I think about these objects, you know, my my standard picture of black holes is that, yeah, these are objects, they don't emit any light of their own, and they really only emit energy at all when another object falls into them. An analogy I've used is that black holes are a little bit like the cookie monster. You know, when you watch a cookie monster on Sesame Street eating those cookies, uh, you see they go all over the place. And yeah, maybe maybe some of those cookies go in his mouth, but like 95% of that cookie, it just goes flying in all directions. Um, does that apply even to these supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies? Are they really messy, lousy eaters like a cookie monster is? <laughs> so I, I really love the cookie monster analogy. I might have to borrow that one from you. So actually, that's, that's a really good way of thinking about this. The way that those things that fall out appear to us um, especially in the, in particular in the way that I'm studying them, 
is, as you said, like at the center of these galaxies, there is these super massive black holes that are between 10 to the 5 and 10 to the 9 solar masses. And as matter starts to fall upon them, it's, which is called accretion, that matter then spun up and ejected out in the form of these long and large jets. These jets are what we actually observe in these blazars in this case in the case of like monsters, but quasars also which it really just depends on how we look at it. But yes, I will I will agree with you there that the way that this works is like it just like goes in, then it gets spewed out in these parallel in these um, perpendicular jets to the spin axis of the black hole. So this is interesting for a lot of reasons. So you brought up a few different terms. One of them is a blazar and Back when I was in graduate school, people had sort of just had the realization that blazars and active galactic nuclei and quasars, they were all the same object just seen with either different intensities or different orientations. So a blazar is basically a quasar or an active galactic nucleus whose jet is pointed directly at you so it's sort of blazing right into your eyes um but one of the things you said is yeah black holes at the centers of galaxies are spinning but also when matter falls into them or when a star or a cluster of matter gets torn apart and devoured by this black hole um does the matter always fall into an accretion disk in that nice same plane as the spin axis of the black hole? Or can it come in a variety of different directions? And if it does come in a variety of different directions, does that mean that the direction that we see these jets coming out of these uh, objects, that that direction might might be something that changes over long periods of time. So to make sure that I'm understanding the, there's, I feel like there's a couple of different parts of your question there, right? So the first part is, can matter come into the black hole, fall into the black hole at different angles besides just flat along the accretion disk? Yeah, I suppose that's the first one. Yeah, so to answer that question is absolutely. Um, there have been, or I would say absolutely we believe that that's true. Um, I've seen where people have actually studied and they've done models where they actually have shown large clumps of matter, gas, dust, and things of that nature that will actually pass through the jet as it's possibly infalling into the center of that black hole. Wow, that's, that's pretty impressive. So you can actually see... Uh, not only these jets, but you can sort of see that this jet is getting interrupted by by the matter that's falling in onto it. Yeah, that's one thing. That's one method that people are people believe that we can see certain types of variability in these jets. When the matter passes in between them, it changes the amount of particles that can be accelerated to different energies, and that'll allow us to see maybe a flare in a certain wavelength that we didn't see before or an increase in the wavelength that we didn't see before that could have been caused by matter infalling and passing through the jet. All right. And then I guess my, my second part of that question is, um, if you have matter falling in in all these different directions, um, 
you know, I assume it's going to make an accretion disk or at least a set of accretion flows. Um, will that disk, will those flows always go along the same set of axes? Will they always wind up aligning with the black hole spin where, say, the two jets come out uh, along that black hole spin axis? Or because you have accelerating matter uh, in the disk, is that creating these electromagnetic fields that are accelerating the matter? And can that orientation change over time? So taking a second to make sure I'm understanding like the, the different questions that you asked here again. Um, so the question about can the matter actually change the spin axis? We're not sure. We do know that things in space wobble. So there is a chance that the black hole as that jet is pointing straight, seemingly pointed straight at us as a, as a blazar right now. There is the possibility that suddenly something could be causing that entire black hole to wobble on its axis where it has more of a precession than what we would anticipate. So it could be pointed at us for a few years and then point away and then swing around and come back. Whether that's caused by the infall of matter, we're not really sure. A lot of people are working really hard right now to fully understand exactly what turns the jets on and off as it is to begin with. Because as you mentioned previously, that's something that we're still trying to understand. There's a lot about these sources that we're still trying to wrap our heads around. You know, I had heard that there are, I guess what we call small scale analogs of these AGNs or active galactic nuclei uh, much closer by. And I've heard them referred to by the term microquasars. Like these are the little guys. These are the stellar mass black holes, the kind that just arise from, well, we had a massive star and it died in a core collapse supernova and it was massive enough to leave a black hole remnant behind. And we've seen that, if I understand correctly, we've seen these sort of microquasars turn on, turn off, and exhibit variability on very short time scales, like time scales of, you know, weeks or so. But looking at something like a supermassive black hole, like the kind you find at the centers of galaxies, um, I'd imagine you'd have to wait extremely long times to see one turning on or turning off. Like it might take hundreds of thousands of years or maybe even millions of years or multiple millions of years for that to happen. And I don't know, I'm I'm getting up there in, in years, but I don't think astronomy has been around long enough to measure those changes. So... Starting from the beginning of that thing with the microquasars, like I'm still kind of like catching up on that side of things myself because I've started to read up a little bit about it recently. So I don't really know enough about the timing of those. But I totally agree with everything that you said about the supermassive black holes. Like if that is the case and they do turn on and off, there's no telling when some of these older Asian may have turned on or may turn off if that. That's the actual bet they will exhibit. The thing that I would like to do is make sure that when they when that happens, we are looking at them in as many wavelengths as possible so that we can see like, okay, this was com this was extremely bright, very active for the past five years, and then all of a sudden nothing. Or nothing was happening for the past five years of observing, and then all of a sudden it just started going crazy with the data. 
things like that will only happen if we have a longer baseline of observations. That way we can better understand, because if we only look at things once a month, twice a year or every now and then, we won't really have any sort of idea of what the behavior of those sources are because we're only checking on it every now and then. You know, this is this is a really important point. You are bringing up uh, two concepts and you're putting them together in a way that I really love. You know, one of my one of my favorite older experiments that I learned about was uh, the proton decay experiment, where they built this giant tank full of proton-containing materials, and they built a large system of detectors surrounding the tank. And this way, if any proton decayed, they would get the signature out of it. Now, you might say, okay, look, it's only been about 10 to the 17 seconds, give or take, uh, since the hot Big Bang. So if you take one proton and you watch it for the age of the universe, you can really only constrain its lifetime to be something like 10 to the 17 years. But if instead you took like 10 to the 30 protons and you watched them all for just one year, then you could set a lifetime that was like 10 to the 30 years or 10 to the 37 seconds. You could do so many orders of magnitude better just because you have a larger sample. So I love this idea of let's monitor large numbers of galaxies with supermassive black holes, some of which are active, some of which are inactive. If the ones that are active turn off or uh, or dim or or otherwise change their behavior, you want to know right away. Uh, and similarly, if the ones that aren't active suddenly turn on, you want to catch them. And I feel like the more quasars, AGNs, and supermassive black hole containing galaxies that aren't on right now, we're monitoring the better chance we have of catching one of them in the act. Uh, would you say that's that's a essential part of what you're sort of hoping to accomplish? That is that is exactly what we're hoping to accomplish um, with with our entire like campaign that we're pushing right now for monitoring AGN in as many millimeter wavelength surveys as possible. Well, that's fantastic. And then the other part about this that you talked about was this notion of what we're now calling time domain astronomy, where you said, you know, you don't just want to look at something once a year or once every few months or once every once in a while to monitor it for changes. You want what what people I've spoken to previously have called this, you want high cadence time domain astronomy. You want to observe this thing faster and more quickly, and you want to come back to it with as short a delay as possible. This way, the shorter term, the variability that exists, the the more likely you are to catch it. And also, if something turns on or off or changes its behavior, the more frequently you go and look at it and monitor it, the closer you're going to be to catching it actually in the act of changing its behavior. And if you get really lucky, you might be looking at it at exactly the time that its behavior starts to change. Exactly. <laughs> That's a that's a challenge though, especially 
if you want to get the resources to do that monitoring in a variety of wavelengths. Because I don't think uh, we're, we're at the point or even close to it where we have the resources to say, you know what we're doing? We're monitoring the whole sky at high resolution in all wavelengths continuously. If, if we could be doing that, uh, you would have the greatest data set imaginable. But because we don't have that, uh, right, resources are limited, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> resources are limited and competition for hours is really high. <laughs> yeah. So um, so what's the next best thing? Like since we, we can't get that dream accomplishment of getting that, that perfect all-encompassing data set that you dream of, uh, what do we do instead to get you the most bang for your buck and your observing time and the data you are capable of taking? So I'll start with what we've done with other wavelengths, and then I'll talk about the data set that, I'm, that I use mostly that I've helped build. So you're, you're absolutely correct. Most surveys and campaigns are very specific and they're not going to be targeted towards everyone's scientific goal. But on occasion, you can get very lucky. Um, for example, our optical data, we actually got that from the um, Yale Smarts Blazar group, where the Smarts Telescope system is the small, moderate aperture research telescope system set up in at the CTIL or Sarah Tololo Observatory. And they actually started a campaign in 2008 to monitor a number of about 100 or so Southern Sphere AGN, and they monitored, monitored them on a one to three day basis, so very high cadence. So I was able to actually work with them during my master's phase um, for my master's project, and it was a great opportunity for me to actually get in contact with them and learn how their data was collected and know that it was publicly available for anyone to use. So we had, we, I kind of stumbled upon a really good resource for optical data, which I've talked to others who've had similar instances with their research. Another wavelength that we decided to use was gamma ray data. And for that one, we were lucky enough to have Fermi, uh, the Fermi telescope observing the entire sky. And since Fermi was observing the entire sky for gamma ray bursts and like specific sources, they also had a lot of AGN in their um, Fermi catalog that we were able to get data from to like double check and like kind of check for correlations and things. As for the millimeter, the millimeter was a bit tricky, but I started working with the Sapo Telescope Group in 2018 and we kind of came to, came to an idea to start this project because we realized that the South Pole Telescope observes the same patch of sky 24-7 for about nine months or so out of the year. This was during its second iteration called SPT Pole. With that, it was kind of a, it was a, it was kind of a miracle moment, right? Because we realized we have pristine data possibly for all of these sources, but this telescope was built to observe the CMB, not point sources at all. And usually what happens with those observations is the point sources are masked out and the CMB is brought to focus. We decided to reverse that process and mask out the CMB and focus on the point sources instead. 
And this is how we ended up getting our millimeter wavelength observations of all of the AGN that we want to try to study in this particular patch. So those are those are the three main data sets you've got. You've got optical data, you've got gamma ray data from NASA's Fermi satellite, and you've got uh, millimeter data, which I think of as microwave to radio wavelengths of uh, AGNs clustered at the South Pole from the South Pole Telescope. Exactly. I mean, that's that's a lot of different data sets, and I'm really intrigued uh, by two different things that you said about the South Pole. One is the repurposing of experimental data that was used for an entirely different purposes. You know, one of the one of the common expressions we have in the field of astronomy is one astronomer's noise is another astronomer's data because when you examine the sky, you get all the data coming from a source. You look out at the deep universe and you are getting foreground signals from within the milky way so if you want to study dust within the milky way you would use that millimeter data you want to observe the cosmic microwave background the afterglow from the big bang that's great put up a mask uh figure out how to do subtraction of all your foreground point sources and look at the pristine light from 13.8 billion years ago. And if you're interested in the light coming from those sources, you do exactly what you said. You do the opposite procedure. You take out the galaxy, you take out the CMB, and you look at everything that's left over. And it's remarkable to me that you were able to actually do this and get quality data with basically continuous monitoring from the South Pole. And that's really the other thing I wanted to ask about, because most of us, when we think about astronomy, we think about, look, what do you need? You need a night sky that isn't covered in clouds so you can see the objects in the universe that you're actually interested in examining. And in the South Pole, that's a terrible location for that. You basically get five months of darkness, you get like one or two months of twilight slash dawn, and then you get six months where it's day, and during most of that, uh, including most of the night at South Pole, uh, it's covered in clouds. So how do you take such good millimeter, how do you take such good millimeter wavelength data when those are your conditions? So... At the South Pole, it's it does get cloudy, but not not nearly as often as it does in the in other locations. And it's primarily because like a lot of the weather phenomena that we that we face as astronomers in other locations are because of the changing of the temperatures of the atmosphere from the sun rising and setting. There are like cloudy days, like there are a number of cloudy days that still happen. There are storms that happen, like snowstorms and things like that. But the millimeter wavelength is actually able to shoot through most of that because the South Pole is extremely high up. So the South Pole telescope and the location is about 9,300 feet high in altitude. So about 2,800 meters or so. And because of this high altitude, the atmosphere is extremely stable and much thinner, resulting in more of that radiation that we wanna see in the millimeter wavelength being able to reach the detectors. 
and more important than that, there is a lot less sky noise because the atmosphere is so stable from not having those every 24-hour temperature fluctuations like you do anywhere else. So all of these things help to make those detections and observations at the South Pole a lot more meaningful and like a lot better than what we can get anywhere else. Wow. So it sounds like the South Pole is actually for the types of observations you want to take. Um, it sounds like it's really sort of this one-of-a-kind location on Earth that you have this high elevation, you have very slow uh, temperature changes, which is to say the temperature stays relatively stable over hourly and daily and weekly timescales. And then on top of that, um, because you're up at such a high elevation and you have that still stable air, you know, the, the Earth's atmosphere circulates a lot more slowly at the poles than it does over uh, tropical latitudes. Um, it sounds like that you you are really getting this opportunity as long as you don't wind up with too thick of a cloud cover. Um, it sounds like, no, this is actually like for the types of observations you want to take, it, it sounds like this is an ideal location for getting really high quality, stable data over long periods of time. Exactly. And another thing that kind of makes like the, the telescope very special in this case is for the giant, for a 1500 square degree map of the sky, which SPT3G is currently able to make, it basically covers that entire map every two hours. So every two hours, it restarts the full map scan. So I won't even say like the full size because like it can it can get confusing with the different scales. So I'll just say this. The South Pole Telescope is able to scan the same patch of sky, the entire patch of sky, every couple of hours. So since it's able to do that, it's a lot easier to remove specific observations for having errors to them and still being able to combine other observations into that single map at the end of the day. You know, that's got to be very exciting because, um, you know, if I think about you know, we, we talk about experiments that are related to the cosmic microwave background in terms of generations. And when you started, uh, SPT Paul was the experiment that was running there. That was in 2018, and that was a Generation 2 experiment. Now they're running Generation 3 experiments, and they're planning Generation 4 experiments. And if I have done my numbers right... Um, the South Pole Telescope Generation 3 experiment is viewing an area of sky that's roughly 1,500 square degrees. And the entire night sky is only about 40,000 square degrees. So you're actually getting a substantial fraction of that entire night sky. You're getting something like between 4 and 5% of the entire night sky visible from anywhere in the universe. And so to say like, oh yeah, it's just a, a small percent. Well, that's that's actually a huge, like when you say 4% of the night sky continuously or enough continuously that you're coming back to it every couple of hours, um, that's that's a remarkable data set. Okay, so one one correction is when I first started in 2018, SPT-3G was actually already observing. The set that I used SPT-Pole was from 
I want to say it's in 12 to 2016. And I was using an old, I, I'm using, currently using an old data set as a proof of concept for the project that I started. And then we're implementing our analysis pipeline into the 3G data set with the new 1500 square degree set data. No, thank you. I appreciate that correction. You know, it's it's really remarkable to think how a decade ago, and it is, it's 10 years ago already, uh, the Generation 2 experiments were just getting started. And now, and now, geez, we're looking ahead to Generation 4 and the improvements we're seeing in terms of sky coverage, in terms of sensitivity, in terms of the time it takes to view that large area. I mean, all of these are increasing really, really rapidly. Um, I'm really curious what you're going to find because you use the Generation 2 data as sort of this proof of concept. Uh, is there anything that you can either share with us about what you found or what you think you might find um, in this Generation 3 data? So there have been like a couple of really interesting objects that we've found. Um, I'm currently in the process of writing an app data that we should have within the next couple of months defending and defending my having a kid kind of held a little bit but <laughs> working on it <laughs> well you know things things take the time they take uh to get them right and to be sufficiently careful and to you know deal with the rest of the complex complexities that we have in our life um but it sounds like uh without without getting too specific because i don't want you to you know, reveal something that's unpublished yet. Um, I like to think that there are a lot of things we know about active galactic nuclei already. Um, but one of the things that I haven't really heard of is uh, about AGN variability, that I haven't heard a whole lot about how do these objects, which, you know, as far as, you know, I was taught, yeah, they turned on at some point, they're blazing away from now, and at some point in the far future, 10 to the 5, 10 to the 6, maybe 10 to the 7 years from now, they'll turn off. Um, but I've got to imagine that there's more to it than that. You know, if you've already talked about, we've seen uh, matter flowing through one of these AGN jets and obscuring it partly before before passing through it and having it return to its original conditions, I imagine that there are all sorts of variabilities that could be buried in this data. So I'm curious, not only uh, what you're hoping to find, but what are some ideas that are out there about how these AGNs might be time variable and what sort of signatures you would look for to see whether that's actually the case or not? So I'll start off by saying you are 100% correct. Like at one point we may have thought that these things either they're turned on at a point and they're just bright and then they're dim. But AGN have a, a tendency to kind of throw us, throw us for a loop as I, the only way I can really think to describe it. AGN have so many different types of personalities like i kind of joke around with my friends at times and i say that i basically do astrophysical people watching because 
there's not AGN that has a similar variability pattern as any other. There might be some that you'll see and on daily a daily basis or a weekly basis, they might increase and decrease in flux by about an order of magnitude. And this will continue for years and we don't see an end to it. While there are others that we'll observe that are just completely calm, nothing really going on, then all of a sudden you'll see an extremely bright explosion of light coming from it that'll last a day and then it'll go away. And then another, you might see it slowly brighten over a couple of years and then just dim out of nowhere again. So the ver the frequency of the variability is unpredictable. And this is another thing that people are trying to fix. Like I mentioned, the, gla the gas cloud or dust cloud that's passing across the jet. Some people are saying that that's where the, all of the, may believe that that's where all of the variability comes from. Others, it may be, I've had conversations with people where it is a possibility that the jet is kind of tilting in and out of our line of sight. So we're looking down the jet one second and then down, peering down into the central engine itself, causing different levels of radiation of different wavelengths to be visible to us. We're not really sure exactly where this variability is coming from. But we do have strong models that help us to determine if we're looking along the jet what we should see depending on um, the amount of radiation that can be that we can detect with our current with our current um, technologies. You know that's that's a remarkable way to look at these things. You know when I I remember people thinking like okay what we should do is we should first figure out for any class of objects we look like what the general behavior is. And then we're going to divide it up into subcategories and sort of look at and how are different species or different types of these different from one another. And what you're sort of telling me for AGNs is that, you know, when you want like a general how does this behave thing, um, you're really very limited in what you can sort of say is general behavior of these because it sounds like variability is the norm and the type of variability you get uh like you don't even know whether part of it is extrinsic or intrinsic or what that balance is you don't know why some of them vary quickly and some of them very slowly you don't know why some of them appear to have transient variability and others appear to have sustained variability like pretty much okay we know that things flow through the jet and that will obscure the jet for a little bit but is that the only source of variability is that the main source of variability is that the source of variability for why these appear to flicker or is that actually because of sort of processing i i had originally thought that agns were going to be like pulsars or like stars, that they would come in a few varieties and they would have a few categories of types of changes that could occur within them, and that would be it. And it sounds like when you're looking at the AGN that it is more like a case of, you know, of humans or snowflakes or things that um, might have some overall properties that yeah yeah they all have that in common but then when you look in the details at any one of them in particular you really are dealing with a unique object with its own behavior that isn't really 
similar or identical to other members of its class. Yeah, like I, it, that's exactly what it is. We the the best way that I can that I am planning on taking my approach to studying these objects is it's a case by case. It's a case by case study, right? You know, one of the things I'm wondering about with these AGNs is you talked about uh, the millimeter wavelengths uh, quite a bit, about what you can observe at sort of these microwave to radio frequencies. Uh, but AGNs shine across a wide range of the electromagnetic spectrum. I guess I should ask a two-part question. Are the AGNs that we are seeing in, say, millimeter wavelengths, do they also appear in uh, optical and in gamma ray wavelengths? Or are these really different objects that we recognize are AGNs, but when you see one in one wavelength, you're not necessarily going to see it in the other wavelengths? And then the other thing I'd ask is, and what can we learn differently about looking in gamma rays or looking in the optical or looking in the millimeter range wavelengths um, when we study these objects? What do looking in these different wavelength ranges teach us about this class of objects? So the first question of if we, do we always see the same sources in all wavelengths? The easy answer to that is not always. Um, I've recently seen papers where there have been studies in the radio a millimeter of surveys found AGN that weren't identified in, for example, maybe the some optical catalog or maybe the Fermi catalog. So it is possible and vice versa. It can also go the other way around. There, It is possible that you can have a, an AGN that's very dim in the millimeter, but it'll have a gamma ray burst and Fermi picked it up. And Fermi was able to identify that as an AGN. And the same thing in the optical. All optical sources may not be picked up in the millimeter as well. And the answer to your question of what do we expect to find by observing them in all these different wavelengths, there's just so much. For me in particular, what I'm studying is the correlated variability between different wavelengths. So... As you mentioned earlier, like there, like when AGN were first identified, there was someone who came up with the unified model for AGN. And this unified model basically tells you, it draws you a picture of what an AGN would look like from the galaxy out, basically. So you would have on one side radio loud AGN which are our blazars and things of that nature. And then on the other end, you would have radio quiet objects. All of them at one point were just identified as QSOs or quasi-stellar objects. From that unified model, multiple different class subclassifications other than out within the radio loud and radio quiet umbrella have since been identified. And it's because of us observing them through different wavelengths that we've been able to identify things, being able to make those different subclassifications of these different objects. So in optical spectra, you can determine whether it's a beta lacertae object or a flat spectrum radio quasar, for example. So it sounds like what you're what you're saying is that um, there are there are different fundamental classes of 
of active galactic nuclei out there. And, you know, some of them are, you know, because of intrinsic properties like, uh, do they emit radio? Do they not emit radio? Do they emit very little radio? Do they emit a lot of radio? Um, do they do they have jets that face us? Do they have jets that point away from us? So some of them are about orientation. Um, and others appear to be, um, you know, maybe still additional sets of variables within these various classes. And that looking at different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum looking in different wavelengths basically allows you to say, okay, um, all of these objects will appear in the optical, but only some of them will appear in the radio, and only some of them will emit these gamma ray signals, uh, and which type of gamma ray signal you emit will will also depend on a series of properties that perhaps we're still trying to untangle. So so you basically get these, I'll call them complementary data sets, um, and that by looking at them together, you hope to be able to say, okay, we see this change in the radio while the optical stays the same. What does that mean? We see uh, that the gamma rays are decreasing while the optical actually brightens. What does that mean? We're seeing that the radio emissions remain constant, but we do get a spike in the gamma rays. What does that tell us? And are are these the type of things that you're looking at in this basically, uh, I'll call it this sort of zoo of this class of objects? That's, that's exactly what we're looking for. I kind of feel like uh, another way to describe my current project, like this um, multi-wavelength observing of AGN, is we're trying to figure out which questions need to be asked by looking at a wavelength, by monitoring AGN in a wavelength that hasn't been done before. We've we've had extensive, we've had years of like extensive data for optical monitoring and gamma ray monitoring and radio monitoring, but not much in the millimeter, if anything. Usually the millimeter is used for uh, follow-up studies and things of that nature where they only have, they have a couple points here and there for the most part. So with us being able to build a baseline essentially from 2012 into the future, we should be able to have a, a long enough baseline within the next few years. So if anyone decides, hey, I or they're going through their data and they say, hey, back in 2018, I saw this southern hemisphere object flare up in the optical. I wonder what happened in the other in other wavelengths. We can actually go in and look and say, okay, we have that. If we have that object, we can see, okay, in the millimeter it did this. And then Fermi will most likely have data for it and say, in the gamma rays, it did this. And then we can ask the question of, okay, what does all of this mean with this correlated or uncorrelated behavior between these different wavelengths? And an additional thing that I can add to that is one of another, so I mentioned that I currently am using SPT poll data, which is a completed data set, and we're planning on implementing this in SPTD coming up in the near future. I'm also in the process now of working with CMBS and ACT for the Atacama Cosmology Telescope to implement a similar pipeline 
um, process as well. So not only will we have the SPT poll patch for the first few years, but after that, we'll also have when SPT, oh, I'm sorry, when CMBS4 launches, we'll have roughly about 70% of the sky covered in millimeter. So it'll make it a lot easier for us to do any types of correlations with all of the rest of Fermi's or the majority of the rest of Fermi sources and any other sources that we have just in the optical that are being covered by other surveys that aren't at the South Pole. You know, that sounds that sounds wonderful because one of the things I was worried about, which now I'm a lot less worried about, is if you're only observing objects that are directly over the South Pole, uh, most of our telescopes are located at relatively equatorial latitudes, uh, some in the northern hemisphere, some in the southern hemisphere. Uh, but if you're like, okay, we're just looking directly over the South Pole, uh, I would imagine you don't get particularly good coverage of objects over the South Pole uh, from traditional ground-based observatories that except for the ones specifically at the South Pole, you pretty much have to go to space. And yeah, we have a few of them up there that can measure high energy things like we have uh, we, we have Fermi, we have Swift, we have we have a few other high energy observatories that are up there. Um, and then you have, you know, okay, uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, we have ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array. Um, but it sounds like uh, you're going from, say, these Generation 2 experiments where you got maybe less than 1% of the total sky to Gen 3 experiments where you're getting like 4% of the total sky and then to Gen 4 where you're going to be getting like 70% of the total sky. It sounds like uh, this spotty coverage problem is going to cease to be a problem, but it also sounds like that's going to come along with a different problem, which is what do I do with all of this data? <laughs> yep. So yeah, we're, we're essentially going from a 500 square degree patch from SBT pole to a 1500 square degree patch with 3G to... I can't even remember the exact numbers for the sky covers that we'll get with SPT, 3G, and ACT combined, and then going up to CMBS4, with, which is about 70% of the sky. So, yeah, that, that's, that was a valid fear when we first started. And between, the, between you and I, we got very lucky because there was only two optical objects that were in our southern hemisphere patch of the 500 square degree survey. <laughs> well, two two is lots better than zero. So so having having any at all is at least it's good enough to show proof of concept. But looking ahead now, looking ahead to what you're going to get when CMBS four is on the way, these fourth generation experiments, and you're getting the data from all of them together, I've got to worry. Um, you know, in terms of handling all that data in terms of dealing with a data set this large and comprehensive uh, in the early stages of these types of 
endeavors, people often go through individual candidates by hand. They say, this is the object I'm interested in. Let's pull the data for this specific object. Once you get into very large data sets, that quickly becomes impractical. Um, and so people talk about things uh, in terms of either an observing pipeline or a data pipeline, uh, because you basically have to have sort of this automated way of dealing with these tremendous amounts of data that come in. Um, can I can I ask you to sort of explain to me what what goes into creating an observing pipeline for all of this data you'll get when you're specifically looking at and caring about active galactic nuclei? Yeah, so there are there are two different parts. So there's actually an observing pipeline and there's an analysis pipeline. And for the observing pipeline, what we really wanted to what we really want to figure out is so like you said, like one of the issues is making sure that you have coverage of the objects that you want to study on decent on a decent scale because this is a time domain study. So with SPT poll and what most the CMB is focusedly, what it'll do is what will happen is the sky is observed thousands of times a year. And at the end of the survey period, which might be 10 years, what we do is we take all of those observations, mask out the point sources, and then we combine them so that the CMB is extremely strong. It's similar to how in optical astronomy, you focus the telescope on maybe a tracking star, and then you let the telescope follow it so it just constantly absorbs all of that light at once. And at the end of the night, you combine all of those images in a single image. So with that being scanning different parts of the sky, what we want to do in the observer pipeline is figure out what cadence is giving us a high enough signal to noise to conduct our study for these HDN. And then we take those observations instead of taking the final, what's called a COAD, a CMP COAD, we actually break up those observations, combine them into bundles. Those bundles and what we use to extract our fluxes for our analysis pipeline. So once the analysis pipeline gets going, that's where we do all of the tricks that I told you about earlier, where we mask out the CMB and look at the point sources, and then we extract the flux. But again, like you said, in the beginning, we do all of that one source at a time. So now instead of just doing one source at a time, we can easily just say, this patch of sky covers this RA and deck or right ascension and declination location of the sky. So we know every we, we know that we can look at everything within a certain range of these two numbers or these boundaries. Then we look at surveys that have already been conducted and we say, okay, these are the RA and deck locations, all of the aging within this field. Once that's done, we can mark those objects in our study and then extract the flux accordingly. And all of that is done for individual sources. 
You know, that's that's really phenomenal because what I'm one of the things I'm hearing from this is that look, when we're when we're monitoring the CMB, right? Because that's that's the justification for these experiments in the first place, for these observing programs, is that people want to study the cosmic microwave background, look for imperfections, look at the polarization, look look for a variety of different signatures, some of which we know are there and we want to study their details, some of which may be there. We know that the CMB is a constant source. Like the the changes that happen in the CMB, they they happen over hundreds of millions of years or billions of years. These are these are extremely slow changing things. So you observe it for a decade and it's fine. You treat that decade like it was continuous. The things that are interesting to you, the AGNs that are in there, those are point sources. Those, when it comes to a CMB analysis, those will probably be masked out or subtracted out or just not dealt with. But what you're saying is, look, we don't just want to look at what's the average of the sky in this particular region. We want to look at what is the average of the sky in this interval, in this interval, in this interval, etc., um, and you want to break it up into smaller and smaller bits so that when you do take a look at the object of interest or when you have the data pipeline take a look at this object of interest because you don't have the bandwidth to do it all yourself, uh, you want it to be able to extract all of the different variable behavior across wavelengths, across different time scales, and you want to see what is the annual variability, monthly variability, daily variability, etc. look like. Because if you're talking about it's going to scan all of this thousands of times a year, you're talking about getting multiple measurements of the same part of the sky multiple times a day, and that's a lot of data. Yeah, so it's a lot of data for at the current time to just be kind of going through individually <laughs> one source at a time. But it's one of those processes where it's it, the payout in the end is well worth it. Um, the wealth of the wealth of information that I think that we're getting ready to put out for the greater astronomy community is is worth all of the effort that we're putting into this project right now. Do you also have that bonus of if you do happen to identify, like, say, I don't know, I'm just pulling out numbers here, like, okay, there are 10,000 AGNs in our field of view, and of these, like, I don't know, 500 have their jet pointed directly at us, and 9,500 don't, but of these 500, these three are doing something really, really weird. Like this one is just uh, pulsing, changing its brightness on timescales of hours or less. Um, do you have the power to say, okay, now that I have these objects of interest, I wanna look in more detail, I wanna look more granularly at these particular objects. Can you then go back through the data and pull out those specific details and do a more uh, comprehensive analysis of individual objects that have piqued your interest. Um, yes, and for more information, see my paper that's coming out in the next couple months. <laughs> well, that's that's awesome. That's awesome. We'll make sure uh, that you send me a link when it's out so I can uh, update the show notes. But oh, definitely. Yeah, because it's it's definitely one of those things that you're right. It is it is a added benefit because 
just initially agreeing that doing the monitoring would be a fun and interesting project in the millimeter. I believe, personally, I started off with this goal of this is going to be so cool. We're going to be able to help the astronomy community out so much by just giving them this extra data. And then the more we st the more we started like, like get things going, the more we're realizing like, oh, we're actually we're seeing so we could find something really interesting here. Like we we found a. I I gave a presentation at a uh, conference not too long ago where I showed a plot that had our like top. 15 or so brightest sources and like that slide alone had people just kind of like curious it's like what's that one doing like that one's doing something weird like I, that one's that one's a little weird too and it's like things that i didn't think were weird but other people thought were weird and interesting so being able to just put that out there for other people to like explore more is personally like the biggest benefit for me you know that's that's really cool. I'm I'm a little curious, and and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. But this to me sounds like one of those no-brainer projects of like the data is there, people will be interested in, in this. It's not something that's presently known. Let's assemble this, put this together, and present it to the community. Was this something that you encountered resistance? from other members of the community when you wanted to do that? Was this something where where everyone was immediately and fully supportive of this project? Or was this something that you you had to sell it and you had to justify it and you had to make a science case for why would anyone even care about this? I want to say that when the project first came up, others, so the project was initially introduced to me as something that a couple people were interested in doing but it was kind of like there's interest but other things kept taking precedence over so i was like i can do it that sounds like fun and then once things started going it was nothing but positive reinforcement and like help and support like throughout the remainder of trying to get things up and running and everything well, that's yeah. I can I can gladly say that there was there was no fighting. <laughs> there was no fighting with anybody to get it done. That's wonderful. That sounds like that sounds like a dream experience. So, let's see. I guess one of the things I'm curious about is what would be like something that you would hope to see in an AGN that you know, theoretically, you fully expect to happen, but that nobody's ever seen yet. Do you have any of those things where you say, you know, if we saw an AGN do this thing, that would, that would like really revolutionize the field. Like everyone who works on AGNs would be like, oh, I can't believe we got a chance to see this in action. Like, are there... Are there any of those big, huge moments that you can imagine, you know, with either current or very near future data, we could actually see one of these events? So one thing that I would be extremely interested to see is if we can catch an AGN that in the millimeter has a extremely bright short-term flare one after the other within a short period of time 
that would be something that I would really be excited to see because then we could go back and check, like, did this happen in other wavelengths as well? And with those short-term flares, I think that that would give us, like, a really good idea of, like, different uh, emission, possible emission mechanisms or things along that nature if it's correlated with other data sets. Because we have seen, uh, we have seen that kind of short-term emission, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but I think we've seen that um, in sort of the high energy portion of the spectrum, like uh, gamma rays and X-rays. They they do have those types of flares. Um, have we seen anything like that in either the optical or the radio, or would identifying that in the millimeter really be like the first lower energy wavelength that we've seen that sort of burst in? I believe that we've also seen something similar in optical. So I believe that we, I believe we've seen similar things in the optical. I may, I may be incorrect on that, so don't, don't, don't quote me too hard. <laughs> No, no, no. We'll we'll make sure our but listeners forgive if you we if see there's something an error. Like that in the millimeter, <laughs> if we see something like that in the millimeter, from the data that I've seen so far, it would be the first time. I mean, that's that's pretty exciting. One of the things I'm a little curious about, um, because I know this is the case for other objects, is sometimes when you get a signal that appears in many different wavelengths, it's all coincident in time, right? It flares in gamma rays, x-rays, optical, millimeter, radio, all at once. But other times, uh, we see delays. And when we see delays, it's often the case that we get a burst in the higher energy wavelengths first, and then the lower energy wavelengths sort of follow after, like it's sort of a uh, like it's sort of a propagated afterglow. That like yeah, it takes more time for the longer wavelengths to sort of brighten and fade than it does in the in the shorter wavelengths. And I'm a little curious if even something as long-lived and energetic as an AGN would maybe identify some of that same wavelength staggering behavior that we've seen in, for example, stellar cataclysms. It, it happens in AGN as well. Like there are, there are a number of papers that you can find now where they show time delays between correlated flaring activity between optical and gamma rays, or even radio and optical or radio and gamma rays. Like there, there are studies that you can find that study like that, that study specifically what that time delay means. Man, that's, that's so wild that, that we can actually do that now. Uh, AGNs are really, um, I think I've, slowly been coming to appreciate how important they are for the evolution of a galaxy. I I had thought initially like, yeah, it's just what's going on at the center of the galaxy. And now I sort of realize that it's tied to things like star formation throughout the galaxy and the end of star formation periods in the galaxy. And that oftentimes they'll activate because you have something like a galactic merger that's taking place or or cannibalism of a dwarf galaxy or you know that sort of thing makes me wonder what sort of oddball things could be happening does does it ever happen that like a globular cluster just passes through the galactic center 
and then there's some sort of feeding frenzy that happens. And what does that look like? And how is that different from when a smaller clump of mass or a tidal disruption event happens nearby? Um, it, it seems like these questions are things that are maybe beyond the reach of present-day astronomy to answer, but that if we're lucky in the next decade or so, uh, we'll actually have enough data to be able to not only say yes, but to provide the details to what happens under those specific circumstances and many more. I would definitely like to see something like that. I remember um, maybe a year or two ago or so, I remember coming across a paper or maybe it was an article online where someone was writing about the center of the Milky Way, how the Milky Way used to have jets. And possibly that's where the Fermi bubbles came from. Like there used to be these jets shooting out at one point and they've since turned off. So it's like, is that true? If that's true, like what can we possibly observe by monitor or watch our central engine to see how it behaves to see if we can learn something from that from the thing closest to us? You know, that would be fascinating, too. I know I know, we've seen plenty of flares from the Galactic Center, uh, but I also know that our black hole is not officially classified as active. It's, it's much more on the quiet side. One of the things, actually, now that you bring it up, and I, I brought this up to other podcast guests, too, so I'm curious what your take on it is. Um, when we look out at the galaxies in the universe, uh, for as big and massive as the Milky Way is, our black hole is really um, surprisingly low in mass. You don't really see any other galaxies where we've measured the mass of the central supermassive black hole where the galaxy is as big as massive as the Milky Way and the black hole is as small and low in mass as this four million solar mass black hole we seem to have is. Uh, do you have any thoughts on why this might be? One of the ideas I've floated is that it's possible that, you know, when you get large enough galactic mergers and you get supermassive black holes that merge together, you can get a black hole merger that leads to a high velocity kick. And is it possible that perhaps billions of years ago, our black hole was actually ejected from our galaxy and this 4 million solar mass, you know, thing that we have left is really just what we've been able to rebuild in the subsequent time since. Oh, man. So that's the that's a really good question. And one that I've never really, never really thought about before, because we just this is just like having a general astronomy conversation because like dusting off my history of the Milky Way, there have been. We do have evidence of, like, small mergers and things like that with the Milky Way, right? Because we see, like, trails and things, correct? Yeah, I think the the two largest that we've been able to reconstruct both happen around uh, eight or nine billion years ago or so. One of them is called the Kraken merger, and the other was a Gaia Enceladus merger. And I believe that they think that the uh, Kraken merger was the largest relative to the Milky Way. I think they believe that uh, 
perhaps between 9 and 20% of the mass of the Milky Way, that that's how big the object was that merged with it back then. And, you know, black holes can get kicks from mergers depending on their spin, relative masses, and orientation relative to each other. They can get kicks of up to like 5,000 kilometers a second, which is way above the escape velocity of the modern Milky Way, much less the earlier Milky Way. It sort of makes me wonder, when you have galactic mergers, uh, would there be a signature that arose that you might be able to look at if if an active galactic nucleus merged with another black hole and got some sort of a kick? Could you actually witness the formation of a post-merger black hole that you knew was then headed on its way out? I, I don't really know whether there's any way to tell, you know, at this point in our galactic archaeological history, whether uh, whether that actually happened to our Milky Way. But but looking around at comparably sized galaxies, wow, our black hole mass is really paltry. Like we have the type of black hole at the center of our galaxy that you might expect for a galaxy that was one to ten percent our size, not not something this big and massive. So a knee-jerk, a knee-jerk question to that is if the, if the black hole at that point was ejected, or I guess a couple of questions, will we, could we possibly guess as to what the mass of that black hole would be? And the follow-up to that is if we could, couldn't we possibly just use current technology and telescopes to just observe the general area around in all directions to see if we see any anything that may be affected by a black hole of that size and possibly calculate how far away it is by now because of eight billion years that's a that's a lot that's a long time to travel and maybe might be close enough to something nearby to interact with it i mean it could be that's a wild thought isn't it the, the thing I would worry about, though, is if you're talking about speeds of thousands of kilometers a second, right, we're talking about something between, you know, I, I guess between a tenth of a percent the speed of light up to one or two percent the speed of light. And if you talk about something like that happening eight billion years ago, uh, you're now talking about something that could be over a hundred million light years away. Um, so looking for a rogue supermassive black hole within a hundred million light years and who knows what the orientation of that merger was and what the subsequent trajectory of the black hole would be relative to us. Um, you know, it'd be one thing if like, yeah, we saw this rogue supermassive black hole plowing through a galaxy. It's the only thing it could have been that I'm pretty sure would leave a signature, but you know, space space has this problem that it's pretty empty, and um, you know, I would I would be curious about that. But if there are those sorts of objects out there, um, you know, you create sort of this cosmic pinball machine where I say if you if you cover enough of the sky and events like this are common enough, uh, you're bound to see some sort of oddity like this happening. I. I shudder to think that the Milky Way, if we did lose our black hole, that like, oh yeah, like we're the one in a million, we're the one in a billion that did. I, I tend to think, you know, if it happened to us, 
it might be one in a thousand, but it's not going to be a super rare thing. So what sort of wild things would be out there with that signature? And who knows, maybe with this data set you're looking at, maybe you'll find something where you'll say, you know, this isn't really what I was looking for with an AGN, but this is unlike anything else I've ever seen. What is it? And, and to me, that's that's where the greatest discovery potential is, not in what do you expect to find, but in what did you wind up finding because you dared to look? Exactly. That's, that's one thing that I feel like I'm kind of drifted away from at one point, but would like to really try to focus back on is I feel like a lot of times in science, we go into a project with a specific goal in mind. I am looking at this data set for this thing. And a lot of times in doing that, we put on blinders. And sometimes we just need to take a step back, remove those blinders and just look at everything for what it is. And we are human actually good at picking out patterns or picking out oddities. Doing that, it'll be just as just as much fun to just look at it and say, oh, that's I didn't notice that before. That's interesting. I wonder what that is. Going a little going on a little exploration, figure out what that is. It might turn out to be nothing. It might turn out to be something. But you'll never know if you only have your eyes focused on one on one specific part of it. You know, I think that's one of the most exciting things about the, the general area that you're talking about of time domain astronomy, because as we look back at that same region of sky faster and faster, you know, we have that higher cadence, we come back to it more quickly, you know, who knows what sort of time scale these objects actually have variability on. Like there could be flares that last for fractions of a second, but if your integration time on all of your images is, I don't know, I'm making up a number, 192 seconds and nothing shorter than that, then then it's very difficult to see, right? The if you're if you're averaging over a long period of time and you have a brief signal, that's very difficult to extract. So I feel like the more you come in, the faster you look at something, the more often you come back to it, um, and the the more quickly you can take a quality image of it the more and more of this type of variability you're going to find yourself sensitive to. And sure, I can make up something like I'll say, oh, yeah, uh, the jets change, they process. Uh, it's because you have instabilities in the disk and that changes the magnetic field and that changes the direction the jets get funneled. Uh, and you also have environmental effects of the surrounding material there. But, but until you have the data... You don't know if what you've thought might happen uh, is at all related to the phenomena you're actually observing. Um, I I love getting those kinds of surprises, and I think that with with a novel data set like this, with a more powerful data set with faster cadence, uh, you might discover some things that you had no idea that you would even want to look for them. That would be absolutely lovely. <laughs> It'd be it would have been amazing, amazing of uh, kind of side effect of being able to do the study. Now, can I ask you? Are there are there any things that you say? Okay, with current technology, we can't really hope to measure this. But if things go the way you hope, 
Can you look ahead 10 years, 20 years, maybe even 30 years and say, if this field advances, if technology advances, if we we invest solidly in building out uh, the type of equipment and resources you would need to do the science you want, do you have like a, a dream science goal or achievement that you could imagine could actually come true within our lifetimes that that most people might not even think is plausible? Well, the one that comes to mind right now, people might actually see it as being plausible because we just got some really good pictures recently. And that's in within like 20 years or so, we're able to basically take the resolution of the Event Horizon Telescope to actually take an image of a black hole and get a much clearer image to where we can see everything that's happening around it. So are you are you basically saying like instead of the black hole around Messier 87, so instead of this uh, this black hole that's, you know, a few dozen micro arc seconds in your telescope uh, that you can see when you basically use the whole Earth as your baseline, what if you put an array of radio telescopes, say, around Earth's orbit or at at around a, a 1 AU distance from the sun? Now you've gone and you've increased your resolution from about 12 or 13,000 kilometer baseline to about 300 million kilometers in baseline. That's that's better than a factor of a thousand improvement in baseline, and that means a factor of a thousand better in resolution. Um, wow, what would you see? What would you dream of seeing if you could do that? Like I would. So I've seen I've seen like a number of people present like simulations of. Oh, the closer you get into the central mass black hole, you find all of these older stars that are just zipping around it in their orbits. And being able to actually see something like that happening, like through an image in a telescope, just like taking snapshots like every couple minutes or so, and you're just watching these things like whip around would be absolutely amazing to be able to actually just see it with your eyes. Yeah, I mean, right now you're talking about something that that really only exists in the mind of a theorist and a simulator. Like you, you can't even hope to observationally see that with existing technology. But if you look ahead, I think that's absolutely right. You can you can imagine resolutions that are thousands of times better than what we have today, and that's. I mean, to me, that's like going from seeing the sky with your naked eye to seeing the sky with like, a, you know, with like a, a huge telescope, like just that, you know, going from something that's millimeters in diameter, like the pupils of your eyes to something that's meters in diameter, like, like the world-class telescopes we have all over the world. Um, wow, what what an advance what a revolution um and i couldn't be happier to to look ahead and be hopeful about what that might reveal yeah it would it would be an amazing thing amazing thing to see and just thinking of that and that's something like semi-close to us because close in space is relative (laughs) 
just imagining what that same that same resolution can do if you're staring at like an AGN ten times further away. Like, what what details will we be able to make out? You know, I I, I am, and I I actually uh, it makes me think of the big ambitious uh, telescope that people are hoping to build that was recommended as the top choice uh, by the Astro Twenty Twenty Decadal, which is this sort of large optical infrared ultraviolet observatory which basically is so ambitious in scope uh just basically being the size of one of the world-class ground-based telescopes but in space like sort of this super hubble um and one of the things that people talked about this that just struck me as amazing is you could resolve any object that was smaller than down to a little less than a thousand light years in size in every galaxy in the observable universe um and that that just blows my mind because you know there's this quirk of astronomy in the expanding universe that you know as you go farther and farther away things appear smaller and smaller and smaller, right? Their angular diameter shrinks down, but only till a point. And then there's sort of a minimum angular diameter you get. And because the younger universe was smaller, you actually wind up seeing objects from the distant past as though they take up more of the sky, as though they're larger and larger. And that that's the sort of thing that just blows my mind that wow, when you're thinking about looking at these AGNs or these quasars uh, from hundreds of millions or billions or tens of billions of light years away, um, if you could build a telescope with thousands of times the resolution you have today, even if you're looking at something 10 times, 100 times farther away, you're going to be able to see it in higher resolution than even the highest resolution objects you can do today with cutting edge technology. God, it's... Yeah, that was, yeah it's, it's, we're, we're, I feel like in astronomy, we're always pushing those boundaries to try to see how how much better we can get. And I hope that that continues. That's one thing that I really really enjoy about the field there's always the push for doing better you know i i i can't agree with you more you know we are we are not the type of people to rest on our laurels because every time we make a discovery every time we find something new um it brings up more questions we realize what the undiscovered frontier looks like and it just compels us to look deeper and deeper uh, John, I, I really have to thank you for what has been a fascinating and far-ranging discovery or conversation about all the discoveries that we've made up till this point that we're planning on making in the near future and that we're looking ahead to uh, even decades from now. I'd like to give you the opportunity to share any final thoughts you have at the end of our conversation with our audience of listeners out there. Oh man, final thoughts. So, so one final thought that I feel like I've kind of said this on a number of different occasions. This is basically how I built my uh, astronomy career uh, so far as scientists, astronomers, and people in general. We need to always remember that there are multiple sides to how everything gets done. 
So there's always the theory that leads to experimentation, which leads to tests and observations, and then that circle continues. I, I started my career as an observational astronomer, then started doing experimental work, and then I came back to observational because I wanted to see the entire picture. I wanted to see the bigger picture of how everything was done. I didn't just want to know what is my data? How do I analyze my data? I wanted to know where did my data come from? How did the thing work that collects my data? And I feel like having that, having that thought process like makes things so much better. It makes it so much more fulfilling personally for me. And for people who are maybe listening to this and they're just like interested in astronomy and they want to get into the field, like that's, that's something that you can think about to like help help you move forward. You don't have to just do one part of it. It's honestly, in my opinion, better if you try to dabble in a little bit of everything until you find what's best, what's your, what's your best fit. You know, I think, I think that's a really important message that a lot of people haven't heard before. There's a lot of pressure on people to know exactly what they want to do and what they want to specialize in and who they want to work with and what type of work they want to do from a very early stage. And there is no substitute for not only exploring and dabbling in different types of things, but getting a feel and getting a healthy respect for what it means to be an observer, what it means to be an instrumentationalist, what it means to do data analysis or write simulations or be a theorist. Um, all of these are valid and important and the more of them you can get an understanding of yourself, the better you'll be able to synthesize your understanding of whatever it is you're studying into a coherent picture. John, I want to thank you so much for a lovely interview, for sharing your expertise with us, and also for, for that beautiful final message. Um, the Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters, and I'd like to shout out all our members donating and supporting us at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to Chad Marler, Jeff Bonwick, Lainey Chuest, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Chris Jakutas, Dominic Turpin, John Methot, John Van Balaguyan, Matt Conroe, Pattern Shift, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Punitive Expedition, Sea Green Mango, Stefan Berneger, William Blair, Amira Sosnick, Andy and Wall, Benish Tech LLC, Brian Terry, David Charney, Denier, Flo, Frank, George Church, John Kozura, Joseph Dvorak, Jose Enrique, Kiliopu, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Arm. Armstrong, Matt Glasser, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Texera, Rafael Wojcik, Randall Slimak, Rick Baker, Sean Foley, Steve Guderian, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parikh, Andres Chovanek, Arnulfo Zepeda, Ben Head, Bob Shire, Brainwise, Brett Minder, Carl Iddings, Casey Haskins, Dan Steelen, Dana Bridges, David Hibbets, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabriel Nader, Glenn McDavid, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Javier Zazo, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Michael Hall, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hanna, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Pavel Zuzelski, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbido, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shah, Sam Terzakian, Steve Shaber, Stuart Lending, Tina Talon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, Wayne Pikarski, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Vanden Heuvel, and Youngko S. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang. Bye.